0: We're going to look at a psalm this morning that you may never have seen. Probably several of you have memorized psalms in your life, different different poems of God in the middle of the book. And I'm going to guess few if any of you have set to memory Psalm 52. It's kind of like a flyover psalm, you know, because Psalm 51 is so big and so awesome. We had to spend two weeks on it, and it gets your attention. It's like you're on the mountain, and you're walking down the mountain, and you're still looking at the mountain, and you're about like Psalm 54, like, okay, let's look what's here. And so Psalm 52 and 53, they kind of get short shrift, but it is a, a good psalm to pay attention to, especially today, as Mike shared about the church plant, Man, he said, we're reminded that there are a lot of people who want this to happen and one who does not. That to be a follower of Jesus in this world means we understand that there is a spiritual dimension to life as well. And this text alerts us to that reality. Psalm 52. And I'm just going to jump in here. Uh, Psalm 52 begins this way. To the choir master, a maskil of David... When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. What is all that? Okay, so a maskil probably scholars think, is a wisdom psalm. There are 13 maskels in the psalms. Now, all psalms are for our wisdom, but this one apparently is dedicated for teaching wisdom to the people of God as they recite it, as they sing it. And there was a specific historical context, which we'll get to in a second, but it was then supposed to be taken, pick it up out of that historical, historical context, and put it down in your life, specially. That's what this is about. What's the context? Doeg the Edomite. You know, Doeg. Everybody knows Doeg the Edomite. You'll be forgiven if you don't know Doeg the Edomite. It's a story back in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 where David, David who's not yet king but will be king, has been anointed to be the king by the prophet Samuel. The lead prophet of God, Samuel, anoints David and says, you will be the next king. So the prophets believed David was going to be the next king. The priests believed David was going to be the next king. And if you remember the story of David and Goliath, David goes out and he slays Goliath. And so the people now believe this one who's anointed of Samuel will be the next king. And most difficult for David, Saul knew that David was going to be the next king. And Saul was the current king. So Saul had a vested interest in delaying that, hopefully by killing David. So he had de- his reign had really turned demonic as he had devoted all his energy now to killing this upstart who had been anointed of the Lord, and so his task was to find David and exterminate him so his kingship would not be in danger, so he would not have to abdicate the throne. But he was not successful. One day, David and his men went to this little town called Nob in Egypt. In Egypt. They're in Israel. I don't know why I said Egypt. Nah. <laughs> I was thinking about the town Nob and what it would be like to be from a town called Nob. But anyway, a little backwater town. Sounds like it is. A little backwater town called Nob where several priests live who cared for the tabernacle and the worship spaces in Israel. And David and his men needed bread. They needed food. And the priest, knowing David was the anointed of the Lord, said, Well, we're not really against Saul, but we're not against you either. We want to bless you. We want to serve you. And they gave them bread, and they helped David. When David was being hunted by Saul, one of Saul's employees, a herdsman named Doeg, was in that town of Nob that day and saw that happen. Doeg was not a Jewish man, he was not an Israelite, he was from this, the country of Edom. So Doeg, the Edomite. Doeg saw this, wanting to ingratiate himself to the king, wanting to get a little power. Basically, he goes and tattles. He says, Hey, Saul, I know you're looking for David. Ahimelech, the priest in Nob and his other priests help David out. Maybe track him down there. Can't find David, but he brings Saul, brings Ahimelech to his court and several of the other priests, 85 priests with him. So there's a whole company of priests, and said, Did you do this thing? And, And Ahimelech's like, Yeah, we did that. We're not against you, Saul, but we are for David. We're not we're not in the midst of this thing, but we did help David. And Saul was furious. He was furious and he ordered his men to kill Ahimelech and the priests. But his other men were Jewish, and they're like, we're not going to kill the priests. The priests, if you understand, they're basically pastors who are unarmed and not fighting. They're just like, we're just here because you asked us to come. They're not, they refused to kill him, but remember, Doeg is not a Jewish man. He's an Edomite. and says, I'll do it. Further to ingratiate himself with the king, and so he by his own sword slays Ahimelech and the other priests. And then he leads a company of men, maybe, I don't know what other men, but who were willing to do this. They went to the town of Nob and killed the women and the children. So Doeg and Saul at this point are just treacherous. They're terrible. They're evil. This is tragic reality. Doeg is a crafty, treacherous man who uses his words to bring destruction on other people? Who uses his words to attempt to thwart the work of God through David, who is supposed to foreshadow the coming Messiah, Jesus, and through whom Jesus would come is actually David's line. So had Doeg been successful in helping Saul capture and kill David, the, the redemptive plan takes a you know a, a left turn. There's a problem. Doeg is seeking to bring destruction through these words that uh, would devour other people. He's treacherous, he's evil, it's a tragic situation and that could create for the people of God a withering reality. David could have just been withered by this whole thing. Now I've got another enemy who's using these deceitful words and conniving words and, and selfish words to bring destruction. And Psalm 52 is David writing in response to that. And again, we, we kind of go through the psalms in order. We did Psalm 51, 50, 49. Just we, we allow, we allow the, the emotional topography of the psalm to, to shape us, and we map ourselves onto it. We, we, many of us aren't in this situation, obviously. But there are similarities that we can map our own life onto. We'll see those. What we see here, David see, shows us that God offers a particular vibrancy to his people even in the most withering of circumstances. The people of God don't have to have perfect sta- circumstances to be healthy and fruitful. Right? It's nice to have good and healthy and easy circumstances, but it's not required. And we're going to walk through this in relative short order and see that in this psalm, evil produces what the psalmist calls devouring words. But God gets the final word. And the call of the people of God is to wait actively for that final word by entrusting ourselves to God's covenant love. So, verse 1. Saul, sort of speaking to Doeg, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And boast here would be more like take satisfaction. Most scholars think this is a mocking phrase, you mighty man. So why is Doeg mighty? He was a shepherd. Why is he mighty? Because he tattled and he killed unarmed pastors. Like you're tough. Like, that's yes, awesome. You know, you're famous, but it's, it's an infamy. Uh, so most scholars think David's actually mocking him a little bit. You know, mighty man. Good work. Um, then he says, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. So you need to know something, Doeg. There's not one moment in the day where the covenant love of God looks away from his people. And please don't mistake God's patience and timing for his lack of concern. For a lack of concern. Right? The steadfast love of God, which is, could be translated the, the hesed, the, the covenant love of God endures all the day long. Even the, day when, the time of the day where you were ratting David out. Even the time of day when you were slaying those priests or the women or the children. The steadfast love of God was not absent, but he is patient. Verse 2, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now, of course, not all the Psalms are like this. And if you're just dropping into New City for one week, you're like, what is happening in this church? Like, it's just one of the Psalms, okay? Um, Doe, this guy has disordered loves. He loves destruction. Part of him loves destroying other people. Part of him it says there in verse four, you love words all words that devour. It's a picture of him making himself full on the destruction of other people. There's a there's a sat, an internal satisfaction that grows. There's a delight in words that tear down or bring destruction into other people's lives. We'll talk about how that intersects our own life here in a second. This is Doeg the Edomite. What he loves is revealed by what he says. There's a principle in the scripture that interpreters interpreters would talk about simply called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation, which means uncomplicatedly God reveals himself progressively in the scripture that means we know more as the scripture unfolds we see more and more clearly with more and more light so we know for instance in uh, Genesis chapter 3 God says I will send one to undo what was done in the garden and one from a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and we don't know any more than that for years and decades and centuries and a couple millennia. And then Jesus comes on the scene. By his work, we see, oh, this is the one. More light has dawned. So we know less in Genesis than we do in the Psalms, but we know more in uh, the Gospels, and we know even more at the end of the, the Scripture, progressive revelation. It's kind of like a, if you have a dimmer switch on a light, one of those sliders, or if you have an old one, one that turns up with a knob. It can go from dark to fully light, but very slowly. In Genesis, there's just a little bit of light. In the Psalms, there's a little more light. You get to the end of the New Testament, it's full on. When we get to the New Testament, we see what is actually happening in Psalm 52. Because what we see, what we see in Psalm 52, the, the stage, if you will, What's presented is this man named Doeg the Edomite and Saul. That's what we see. What we don't see is that there's actually something behind them in Psalm 52 in the shadows that we can't see that David is not fully aware of because it's in the shadows, and that light is not turned up far enough yet. But as the scripture goes on, that light gets brighter, and those shadows get illumined, and Jesus comes on the scene. And then the epistles in the book of Ephesians comes on the scene, and the light gets turned up. And we see that though in Psalm 52, we only see the, the, uh, the evil person, that there's something behind that evil person when the light is turned fully up, we see it. Ephesians 6, I put this in your insert on the right side, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what in Psalm 52 what we see is this evil guy named Doeg and Saul and then shadows behind him. The lights turned up by the end, of the end of the Scripture say, oh, what's behind them is that there is evil impulse in this world, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places centered in, as the Scripture talks about, Satan, or it could be called the devil, or the accuser. So spiritual reality behind the person. This is really helpful, Christian, if you're going to take the Psalms seriously. This is helpful to bring together the Jesus who inspired the Psalms who, with songs like this that call for the destruction of the wicked. The same Jesus who takes on flesh and says, love your enemies. Like, there's a huge disconnect sometimes. Like, what happened? So we're praying for the destruction of the wicked in Psalms and we're Jesus saying, love our enemies. And sometimes a well-meaning or not so well-meaning critic will say, see, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. You just got to read the whole book, right? Uh, so what's, what, what does this allow us to do? It allows us to long for the destruction of evil that's behind the expression of evil in our world. At the same time, set our love on those who through whom the, the evil is being expressed and bring correction, bring challenge, sure, but we don't have to long for their destruction because we're longing for the destruction of the evil behind them. So it, it reframes how we're to pray these these psalms, what we might call sometimes imprecatory psalms, longing for destruction because we're actually asking for the destruction of evil in this world. It is sometimes fashionable for the people of God now to put on their like prophet hat as if they're an Old Testament prophet and denounce public figures. Sometimes this happens whether it's a politician on the left or the right or an, an entertainer who's always giving us things to talk about and sometimes say stupid things and just to denounce how evil that person is okay we're not really geared that way here but like i get that i get the inclination but if we are not denouncing the evil behind the person totally missing the full light of scripture totally missing the full light of scripture So we're in a situation now, in our day, where the spiritual forces of wickedness, however you want to, whatever thread you want to pull on that, the devil, Satan, the accuser, whatever, and all the worldviews and thoughts and philosophies that kind of play into that, cannot now stop the work of Christ. Christ has died, he's been resurrected, the power of the new age has begun to break in, he's ascended to the throne from where he sits and gives grace, power to his people, and from which he will return to restore all things. That can't be stopped. But the work of the people of God and the life of the people of God can be thwarted. Destruction and devastation and frustration and all kinds of discouragement come come flooding in, and often that is through words that devour. That is a primary work of destruction in our world, words that devour. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the scriptural connection to the word devour is with words. Words like he said to Adam and Eve. I think you really need this fruit. You can't live without it. God is hiding something from you. You surely will not die. These are devouring words. we live in a culture so I'm talking about for the church first and then a little bit wider as a Christian in our culture I mean I constantly get like uh, just so weary of what happens where sort of the worst example of a Christian is picked up and used as the, the, the normal example of what a follower of Jesus does so I cringed when I saw this you just know what will happen a couple of weeks ago, a lieutenant governor of the great state of Texas says, uh, God wrote the Constitution. Um, so, predictably what happens, right? A more conservative so-called news outlet like Fox News oh, some of you love Fox. I don't care. They're going to do it, right? They're going to say, this is what a true Christian believes. Praise God for a faithful person. And a so-called liberal outlet like uh, New York Times will say, see, this is what real Christians believe. That God wrote the Constitution. And almost all Christians would be like, wait, what? This is the document God wrote. What are we talking about, right? But it's just treated like you feel that, like, and maybe I'm, uh, maybe it's confirmation bias. Maybe I see it so much I see it everywhere, but it's like this is not, this, these are just devouring words. Okay, fine. Or we pick up the worst or weirdest teaching of someone out there and it's treated as like this is what the Bible teaches, and then it gets repeated, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. It doesn't make it real. It just makes it prominent, right? Um, but that kind of thing is is it seems to me woven into our culture so much so that I'm not sure when this happened, maybe a few months ago, maybe a couple years ago, Amazon stopped allowing you to comment on book reviews and in part was because it was drawing out the cesspool of our souls toward each other right and now YouTube, you can still dislike a video but the, the the, the count got removed you can't see how, bad, how many people disliked it. Now, if you real, read the comments still, you get a front row seat to a lot of depravity. Um, constant criticism, defamation, degradation, mocking, all this kind of stuff is normal. Is normal. Now, a lot of this isn't against God, of course, but it is all against those made in His image. Right? This does invade the church as well. Paul warns us in Galatians 5.15, why do you bite and devour one another? Now, they're not obviously biting each other. That may be in the nursery. But they're not, they're not, what are they using? their words. Proverbs 18 and Proverbs 26 repeats it and says, gossip is like a juicy morsel. A juicy morsel. Like we actually, we like it. No, we don't like gossip. But tell me what that was again. Right? I shouldn't say this, but, and everybody leans in, I'll, I'll clean it up so what, the exact same th- thing I was going to say, I'll say with different words, and somehow now it's not gossip, and I feel good saying it, but I don't want to gossip. I get this. Oh, my goodness. Who here listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Anybody? Who's listened to part of it? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? I did, I listened to it, but I had to stop partway through. You know why? Because I liked it. There was part of me that liked to hear of the destruction of a popular church and a brash pastor. That's true for some of you, too. The reason it was number one on Apple Podcasts for such a long time, not just the religious part, the whole thing was because of the German word schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Taking delight in another's pain or destruction. Part of the reason, at the very least. And I know it's part of the reason because it's part of the reason I like to listen to it. Part of the reason it took me an extra long time to get through it because I'm like, I oh, don't know it's good for my soul. But let's listen to the next one anyway. When we forget the gospel and the fullness and the completeness that we have in Christ, we are tempted to use devouring words to bring a fullness into us that we're, we're forgetting that we already have in Jesus. Somehow, somehow, it's so weird that if we can tear someone down and show that they are silly, somehow we're better and fuller. And, you know, we are, we are right and they are worse and, and they're to be mocked and we're to be praised and our team is better and therefore I feel like I'm fuller. Sometimes this disease just comes in the volume of words. I love the proverb in Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. When, or some, one translation says, when words are many, sin is not far. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise. I couldn't find more recent data than this, but in 2009... Uh, research revealed that we are exposed to about to about one hundred thousand words per day okay? that 's a lot of words you know in print age technical age think of the proliferation of word exposure since two thousand nine right? social media blogs the volume of words we speak anywhere from seven thousand to 15,000 words a day. We speak that many words. That's a lot of words that are going out. That's a lot of words, for sometimes sin is not far. Okay, who here has heard that women speak more than men? We heard this? Who here, let's just be honest, has heard that women speak significantly more than men? Words per day. Okay, Great. Who here has heard that there is absolutely no data to corroborate that? There is no data to corroborate that. There's a lot of data of people repeating that over and over again. You know why? Why do we repeat something like that? Because we like to devour each other. Oh, women talk so much. You know, women, they talk so much. You know, men, they hardly say anything. They're not in touch with their feelings. What are we doing? We're devouring each other. So, the best data I could find is that men speak about 3% less words per day than women 3% difference evil will take opportunity through the proliferation of words I'm not saying we shouldn't talk but perhaps we should talk slower perhaps there's wisdom in moderating our words a little bit number two God has the final word Back to Doeg and the evil behind him. Verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Keep in mind, David's on the run for his life when he's saying this. This is piling up words to speak of removal. That God will get the final word. Culminating with removal from the land of the living. I mean, it's an intense psalm. At the prospect of death, should be the final wake-up call for every person. I, c- I can't set myself against the purposes of the Lord. I ought not. Now, it's not the final wake-up call, but it could well cert- be that way. And there is a certain and future final word that God gives, a deliverance and a setting of things right. And it, but it seems like a long time that evil gets to endure. And if you see sin and brokenness in your own life and just if you keep struggling with the same thing for a long time it's like lord how long i thought i was done with this and it's come back again how long O oh lord or this long family discord how is it going to be forever how long the encouragement is that one day the length of time that it takes god to remove evil from this world and bring healing in our own life. Though it seems long to us now, one day, to our senses, it will seem almost immediate. Here's what I mean. Probably most of you remember, if you can remember when you were 10, that's a stretch for some of you, I get it, but if how long summer vacation seemed. And you probably got a summer vacation, actually. When, no balance schedule, so you're off pretty much June, July, and August. When you're 10, it just seems like it's forever. It's awesome. What? And it, Now, if you're 50, it seems like, Did summer happen? Is it already gone? Is it really already at the end of August? Yes, it is. What happened? When you're 10, those three months are 5% of your remembrance life. So you can start remembering like five years old. You know, by the time you're 10, those three months are 5% of your life. And you're like, wow, this is a whole 5% of my life right here. It seems like a long time. By the time you're 50, those three months are one half of 1% of your life. It's like, ooh, what happened? If you're 80, it's one third of 1% of your life. The summer, like, boom. Why, this, why did summer seem like it went so fast? Because in comparison to the rest of your life, it did. It did. When you're in a hard season of life, some of you know this. Some of you are in that right now. I totally get that. It, like every day or every week can seem like a year. This thing's never going to end if you finally get through that season and look back and say, you know, it, is, it was hard and I wouldn't want to go through that again. But our experience of it is like, okay, it gets a little shorter and a little more manageable and a little less overwhelming to it because we know there is an end. There was a, there was a a fixed beginning and a fixed end of it and it's done and we're through it and the farther we get, the smaller it seems because proportionally to our life, it is smaller. Run out. 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 10,000 years, 370,000 years. The time which God allows evil, the patience of evil in this world Will seem seem increasingly small to our experience. The call for is the people in us, people, now, wait, hold on, hang in there together, be patient. I think this frees us from a good deal of defensiveness in our world. You know, you can let the the accusations fly back and forth and say, you know what? I will just, I don't have to enter the fray here. Jesus, if you remember, First Peter two. When he was reviled, it says he, does not, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly on our behalf. He didn't feel like he had to defend himself at every turn. Verse 6, the righteous will see, shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So this laughing is probably not mocking so much as joyful celebration, like, finally, Lord, we can breathe that evil's been kept at bay now. So there is a, a depth celebration that one day the evil will be removed, but is a kind of a backhanded warning that to all those who, instead of taking refuge in God, take refuge in themselves and their riches. Whatever those riches may be, it could be it could be money, but wealth comes in lots of shapes and sizes. It could be success or Approval. It could be acclaim. It could be beauty. It could be these things we value that we can bring to ourselves that we can get a little more of if we use devouring words against other people and get more and more and more. The Bible's not saying these things aren't riches. It's just saying these riches are not a very good refuge. They protect you from nothing. In fact, the more you have, the more exposed you are because the more threat of loss you have when you have them. But in in the desire to hold on to those riches... If we could become defensive and combative, devouring words, it can be an increasingly toxic environment. Is there hope of survival in this for the people of God? Well, the answer to that question is survival may be too low of a bar. This psalm ends by David still on the run for his life, still with another group of people that are trying to rat him out, saying this, verse 8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. David, don't you know your circumstances are terrible? And apparently he's like, cool, I got that. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. This is the same David. I mean, I do think it's intentional the way that Psalm 52 is butted up right against Psalm 51. This David who does terrible, crazy things, like right here is like, he sees it. That encourages me, right? I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Olive trees, they live, they can live for hundreds of years. They give fruit to others. It's a picture of being full of life. How is he full of life? How is he like it? Well, here's how. Verse 8 the second part. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. The steadfast love of God. That is the that Hebrew term for the covenant love of God. Not the love of God. It's like, oh, God loves you in a kindly way. He's a nice old man who kind of loves you. It's the covenant love. And remember the principle of progressive Revelation. David says a phrase, covenant love of God here. But as time goes on, the fullness and the full flower of that is in the God who made this covenant, stepping into earth, taking on flesh, living for his people, dying for the sins of his people, being raised, bringing his people with them, connected spiritually, taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God and now giving grace to his people. That's the covenant love of God. This is what we trust in. Today we would say something like this. Trusting in the completed work and person of Jesus on our behalf and that the righteousness that he gives to us makes us absolutely, utterly, and unimaginably complete. And all that will happen for the rest of our life and the rest of eternity is that we will grow into deeper appreciation, joy, and apprehension and comprehension of that reality and all that is ours for us in Christ. That's all forever and ever. So we look on our past and say he took our sin. We look at our present and say in union with him, I'm clothed in his righteousness and he defends me right now. I'm actively rejoiced in by the Father. In the future, I will never be left, never, never be forsaken. Nothing can separate us from his love, and it cannot be otherwise. Trusting in that. Now, I want you to see, the Scripture's not asking you to agree with this. David does not say, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I agree with the steadfast love of God. Satan believes God has covenant love agreeing with it only makes you accurate right this is an entrusting of ourselves into this right Uh, being rooted in this reality of our life having it drive us being being nourished by it not being nourished by our career not being nourished by our bank account not being nourished by our claim not being nourished by sexual satisfaction not being being nourished even primarily by great marriage being nourished by the love of God That's what David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. It allows us then to be free from the need to utter devouring words to get something. Why? We've already got it. I can't get something from you that I don't already have in Christ. It makes us free to give life-giving words because we don't have to get something from others. It means we don't have to be intimidated by all the devouring words that float around our culture against the work of Jesus because we know that we have a defender, because we know those words are actually driven by fear and a grasping of riches that cannot be a refuge. It means in-person relationships. This is something I heard a few years ago from the writer Dallas Willard before he passed and has been very impactful to me for years now. He said, he was about 80, 80 years old when he said this. He said, the Lord is teaching me this. I do not have to have the last word. Some of you are natural arguers and lawyers, and you just have to say one more thing for, say, your spouse to understand why you're right. I'm that, I have that gift or curse, I'm not sure. In Christ, we do not have to have the last word. Jesus died because we are sinners. Part of that sin means we may have profound blind spots that we keep defending when we should just shut up. We don't have to have the last word. We can trust the Lord to work in our life when we are quiet sometimes. So in a lot of ways, the great act, the great activity this psalm is calling us to is a great passivity, resting in the work of God on our behalf. Now, as we see that, it involves thanksgiving. Verse 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. So he's speaking of the future in the past tense. Now, we do the same thing, right? We can say, uh, we can speak of the defeat of evil because what has happened at the cross already. We speak of the future with confidence in the past tense because he's done it. And in this, we wait together. I will wait for your name. Or, before it is good, or I will wait for your name that it is because it is so full of goodness in the presence of the godly with each other. Turns out, guys, we're built for each other to encourage us, to keep in, in a world that swims with devouring words when we contribute to it ourselves for one another to say, hey, don't you remember we have a Savior whose name is good and promises to bring goodness into our life Never does his covenant love turn from us. It's always for us as we meditate and lean into that, we are empowered to stand and to be free and sometime to be silent and always to have a deep confidence in the one who rescues us. That is fully presented to our senses here in the communion table, this rescue of Jesus on our behalf. So we're going to go to the communion table uh, we say taking communion in the New City community is a public de- declaration that I receive and rest on Christ alone as he is offered to me in the gospel, and I want his lordship, his authority in my life. Not perfectly, but honestly. Right? It's not for perfect people, but for honest people. If that's you, take communion with us. Now, we would say if you have conflict with another person in the body of Christ and you've not tried to resolve that conflict, first, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with that person. You may not be able to, but make an attempt, an honest attempt, and then come back next week and come to the table with us. Let me pray, and I invite you to go and uh, take, get your elements, and we'll take them, bring them back to your seat. We'll take it all together. Uh, get a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine, and then bring it back to your seats. Lord Jesus, thank you that we don't have to have the last word because you had the final word. It is finished. We are loved. Now the words, Holy Spirit, you speak into our heart or call out with me, Abba, Father, to know the love of God even deeper. Thank you for the table now as we taste this bread and cup. May it open our eyes even more broadly, even more brightly, even more fully to your mercy for us in Christ's name, amen.